pray in his name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. It's my pleasure to um, be before you this morning. Uh, if you've not been with us uh, over the last few weeks, we decided to end the summer by taking five weeks and going through what we call our ministry strategies, that we have five unique ministry strategies that we say these are the things in the interest of simplicity, which I don't know if, you know, in the interest of simplicity, we only have five things. I'm not sure if that really fits, but we're going with it. So in the interest of simplicity, we've said here are really the five things that we boil down what we feel like we're called to do. Uh, those being that we are called to be in community with one another, sharing life together in what we call community groups, which are small groups of people who meet in homes just like the early church did and who frequently and spontaneously come in and out of one another's life to be one people. You know, we feel called to be one people. Um, that we're not only to live in community with one another, but that we're to be a worshiping community that, that gathers together every Lord's Day, retelling the story of our salvation and our liturgy, and so to be trained in a certain way of looking at the world and produce the holiness and the obedience that the Scripture calls us to. So a holy people uh, who, have a, who live a holy life. And then thirdly, to be a people who are on mission, strategically engaged in mission in our city, by partnering with other churches and ministries who are, who are spreading the gospel in our city and in the world in both word and deed, evangelism and mercy ministry. So a people on mission, one people, a holy people, a people on mission. And those are the three that we've covered to this point. And then today we come to this idea of discipleship that we believe that we're need. One of the things we're going to have to do is we're going to have to intentionally evangelize and disciple people how to live in the kingdom of God in the unique circumstances of their lives. And so this morning we're going to be talking about this idea of discipleship. And we're really going to have to go after the whole idea of what Christianity is here uh, and of what we understand it to be. So if you have your worship folder and you can get the insert out of that, you're going to see that what we've been doing in this series, because it's more topical in nature, is we're not just taking one passage uh, and working through that passage as we normally would. We are kind of taking a cluster of passages and trying to exegete them. It's still exegesis. Uh, it's just exegeting from different places to kind of come together uh, and figure out you know, what it is we want to say through what, what the Scripture is saying to us. Um, and so we're going to look at four different passages this morning from John 12, Luke 12, 2 Timothy 2, and Titus chapter 2. I want to warn you, this is hard. Um, don't water it down. Don't. Don't allow you're going to hear your mind begin to make excuses for how it, the, the scripture can't possibly be saying what it is, in fact, saying. Uh, be aware of that as we read these passages, because they are radical, to say the least. OK, so beginning in John chapter 12, let's read together uh, some Greeks come looking for Jesus. And then we got we pick up the story in John 12 right there in verse 23. Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Continuing to read. Now, great Crowds accompanied him, 
And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Verse 33, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. For no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Titus 2, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. uh, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. This is God's word. I heard a in there (laughs) from the front. So three things this morning about discipleship that we want to look at, and you'll see that there are the three points in your outline on the other page. The first is the expectation of discipleship. Secondly, the definition or the mode of discipleship as we go about it as a church and then thirdly the cross and how the cross is both our methodology and our motivation for discipleship so those three things from these passages that we're going to pull out beginning just with this the expectation of discipleship i don't know if you've ever read anything by dallas willard he's a philosophy professor at the university of southern california if you haven't google his name go to amazon type in dallas willard buy whatever comes up that's true very good stuff but dallas willard Uh, who writes a lot about discipleship, he has this quote that I go back to over and over again because it's truly amazing. He says, The disciple of Jesus is not the deluxe or heavy-duty model of the Christian, especially padded, textured, streamlined, and empowered for the fast lane on the straight and narrow way. He stands on the pages of the New Testament as the first level of basic transportation in the kingdom of God. Now just think about this, and this, this shocked me. The first time I came to realize that this was the truth. Think about this. The word Christian. Any idea how many times the word Christian is used in the New Testament? Two. Any idea how many times the word disciple is used in the New Testament to describe those who call themselves Christians? 269 times. And so what you see there is. You know, Dallas Willard goes on to say, okay, that this idea of what it means to be a Christian, he says for several decades, the the churches of the Western world have not made discipleship a condition of being a Christian. He says one is not required to be or to intend to be a disciple in order to become a Christian. And one may remain a Christian without any signs of progress toward or in discipleship. So far as the visible church is concerned or the visible Christian institutions of our day are concerned, Discipleship is clearly optional, but is it really? 
And so what we've got to do this morning is, is we've got to talk about what the difference is between being a Christian as it's come to be, you know, talked about in our culture and in our day and what the Bible talks about when it calls us to be disciples. And we have to ask the question, does Scripture really represent discipleship as being optional? And so what I want to say to you this morning is, is that Scripture conceives of Christianity as being something far more involved, I guess, is the right word than just, you know, consenting to a set of doctrines or to half hearted church attendance. You know, a Christian is not somebody who just believes certain things, but somebody who has deep values and convictions, who indeed does believe certain things. But these beliefs lead to a particular way of life. A Christian, if I could put it just as simply, a Christian is somebody who believes the teachings of Jesus and is putting the teachings of Jesus into practice. It's interesting if you read the book of Acts that the early church was called the way. That's what they referred to the early church as, is the way. And if you read places like Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus commissions his church to go into all the world and to make disciples, and here is the, here is the command that he gives them. Go, make disciples, and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And so it seems very clear from Matthew 28 there and from other places that we could go to that Jesus intends that those who follow after him would obey him. Jesus expects to be obeyed. He doesn't expect for us to read the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you know, love your enemies and think, oh, wow, isn't that so nice that he would tell us? No, he expects you to love your enemies. You know, Jesus expects to be obeyed. He says, you know, don't store up wealth for yourself, but sell your possessions and give to the poor. That's not just some, you know, fluffy ideology of, wow, utopian. It wouldn't that be great. He expects those who come after him to obey him. Jesus expects obedience to lead by serving, to live by dying. All of the, the things that he's called us, the way of life he has called us to, not just some fancy, you know, hope that he has. It is his expectation for what those who follow after him and call themselves Christians. It's his expectation for how they would live. Just look at the words that are used in this passage to describe Christians. OK, there are three of them that I want to point out to you, and you'll have to look in different places. In chapter 26 of John 12, he calls us servants. You see that if anyone serves me, he must follow me and. Wherever I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, so three times he uses this word servant. And it's the word, the Greek word diakona, or where we get the word deacon, or literally one who waits tables, one who serves the interests of another. And think about that. A servant has no claim to self-interest. The servant has one job, doesn't he? And that's to do whatever his master needs him to do. And And I think part of what we're, you know, we would come to learn here is that Jesus doesn't exist to, to meet our needs and serve our agenda and to come when we call. He's the master. We're his servants. And so Paul says in Second Corinthians five, which we read just a couple of weeks ago, that Christ's love compels us that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who died for us. We don't live for ourselves. We're his servants. We're completely consumed. In his call and in his needs and in his agenda and in his goals because we're his servants. But there's a second word. And if you look in Luke um, 12, you'll see there he talks about those who would come after him um, in verse 25 and 26. If anyone comes after me or if anyone follows me, it might be put in another one of your translations. And, it, and, it, and it's really translated 
a follower. It's a Greek word, akalutheo, which means an attendant, or if you would prefer, and maybe, you know, parents, if you don't understand this, ask your kids, part of an entourage. Right? It's an attendant or part of an entourage. In other words, Jesus invites us to come after him, to follow him, to to come along after him. And the idea in in that word is conformity. Uh, It's an idea of I'm coming behind him so that I can imitate what I see him doing before me. Okay, the analogy that I would give you to help you understand kind of what the expectation, you know, is that is set by this word is I remember, you know, this is a story that probably all fathers have, but I remember being at the beach when Isaac was very young. He's six now, maybe he was two or three, and I'm walking down the beach, and I, because I'm a type A personality, I tend to, my experience with walking anywhere with my children is, come on, let's go. You, anybody else with me on that? You know what I mean? I have a really hard time strolling. I'm not a stroller. And so we're walking down the beach, and I remember I'm kind of turning around, and Isaac is falling behind, and I'm aggravated with him, and I'm thinking, what is he doing back there? And I, so I kind of make my way back to where he is, and I realize what he's doing is he's doing this number right here. Anybody remember what he's doing? What is he doing? He's trying to put his little feet in my footsteps. Because, you know, because my walking down the beach has left a trail, you know, that 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 is of footsteps. And he, because uh, because he loves his dad and just because the little boys just like to do stuff like that, he's coming behind me and he's seen the imprints of my feet and he's trying to put his feet on top of the imprints of my feet. That's the idea of followership. That Jesus has left footprints throughout the course of this world as he walked the dusty roads of the world and that he calls us to come behind him and to put our feet um, where his feet have been. To follow him. But then there's a third word. And that third word is all over the place. Now, I'm not going to point it out in just one place. But it's the word disciple. A person, mathetes. It's a person who is a disciple. And that word means a pupil or a learner or an apprentice. It describes someone who wants to learn a craft or a trade, or a teaching, and doesn't know how to do it. And so he enters into a relationship with a teacher or with a master who can train him um, in, in the trade or the craft or the teaching that he wants to learn. So Dallas Willard has this definition of a disciple, which is fantastic to me. He says, a disciple is someone who has decided to be with another person under appropriate conditions in order to become capable of doing what that person does or to become what that person is. Before I planted this church, I was a church planting apprentice at the church that we came out of. I was a church planting disciple. What that meant was, is I had never planted a church before, but my pastor, Tim Rice, had, and he had done it rather successfully. So I had one job description, and this was it. The greatest job description in the history of job descriptions. Follow him around, learn to do what he does, and learn to be like him. That was my job. Go to counseling appointments with him. Watch how he does premarital counseling. Go to the membership classes that he does. Figure out how, you know, what his preparation time. Sit with him as he's preparing for sermons. Learn how he kind of interacts. Just, just be with this person to learn how to do this thing that you're being called to do. Because I have no idea how to do it. How do I learn? I find somebody who's already done what I'm trying to do. And I put myself in connection and relationship with them and learn from them how to do the things that they can do or learn from them how to be 
what they are, a disciple. So you see these words, you know, the, the uh, deacon, I can't even say it, diaconio, you know, akalotheo, mathetes, disciple, follower, servant. These words create a certain expectation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. All those different nuances we just talked about, but they're theological arguments as well. And, and even from our, what we believe, you know, the scripture to be teaching us about what it means to become a Christian, just the theology of conversion. If you just talk about that for a minute, that becoming a Christian is so much more than just adding Jesus to an already overscheduled, busy, crowded life, that Jesus demands repentance. You know, he comes on the scene talking about the kingdom of God. And the thing he says is, is the kingdom of God is coming. Repent. Jesus demands repentance. And that means that he demands that when we come to him to to follow him and to enter into a relationship with him, he demands that we turn away from one way of living and unlearn one way of living and learn from him a whole new way of life. That's what and that's what we understand conversion and repentance to be that you are that that one life is ending and a new life in following after him is beginning that it's that radical of a change. It's like dead people. Coming to life. And, and again, what, what we believe happens when you become a Christian is we believe in what we call the, the union of the believer with Christ Jesus, that you believe into Jesus. And the problem is, is we've gotten it backwards in the church, because a lot of times what we tell our kids is, is that when they when they believe in Jesus, their belief, Jesus is coming to live inside of them. And while that is true, while it's true that Jesus, you know, kind of comes and is in their heart and it's all nice and sweet and cozy in there. What the, the force of the scripture, when it talks about you believing in Jesus, there's even a preposition in most of those phrases that talks about you believing into Jesus. You're believing into him. So it's not so much that when you believe he's going to kind of come and make a little home in here. It, it's that you are you are being pushed out of your life and you are being united. You are coming into him. When you believe in him, you are you are being united to him. You are coming you're coming into his reality. You are being tied to him. And, and the illustration that I always use to explain this to people, and nobody believes that it's a true story, but I, on my life, it is a true story. I grew up on Lake Eloise. And back then, you didn't wakeboard. We didn't even know what wakeboarding was. It wasn't cool. So kneeboarding was like the coolest thing you could do, right? Anybody with me? Kneeboarding? Rock on. And I remember, I remember one day, um, we... <laughs> We were we were we were kneeboarding and there I don't know how I, I again I look back at my life and think what were my parents you know dad no offense what were my parents thinking but anyway uh, we were out on the lake there were no adults and I think I was like 14 or 15 at the time and we're in Little Lake Eloise and I am kneeboarding along behind the back of the boat no big deal and I'm true story in front of me an alligator pops up and I rode up the back of the alligator <laughs> and I landed. And 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 um and I, I told the guy later, you know, I was like, okay, whoo, you know, it's time to get us out of here or whatever. And 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 we were talking about it later, and I said, if I, I thank God I landed it. If I didn't, I would have drowned because I was not letting go of the ski rope. You with me? And so wherever that boat was going, I was going with it. Get me out of here. What the scripture would teach you. Is that when you when you become a Christian, your life is so tied to Jesus that just like that boat, wherever that thing was going, I was going with it, that wherever Jesus is going, he is bringing you along with him. 
because you're tied to him. Your life has been united to his life and you come into that kind of intimate relationship with him. And he, you know, it's a terrible way to say it, but he is dragging you along with him into all the things that he's doing. And it's an inseparable link. And so by definition, he says in John twelve twenty six, if you see the phrase there, if anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am there will my servant be also. So this call to discipleship. I mean, it really is a call to surrender our entire lives to him. Uh, Do you see the question I ask you there? Does Jesus have to be your Lord? Or can he just be your personal assistant? Because you see a lot of Christianity, it feels like, is trying to do the opposite. But just think about this with me for one minute. And I just, I ran across this this week and it just blew my mind. If you consider that the distance between the earth and the sun, which is 92 million miles, um, is the thickness of, of this one sheet of paper here, then the distance of the diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of this paper that would be 310 miles high. Now think about this. Our galaxy is less than a speck of dust, hear me, in the part of the universe that our technology allows us to see. And who knows, it might be that our universe is just a small fraction of all of the universe that there really is. And if Jesus is the Son of God, who holds the entire universe together by the power and the authority of his word, then do you see how utterly ridiculous and foolish it is to think that 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 he is the kind of person that you can ask into your life to be your personal assistant? To do things for you when you want and come when you call. There's (laughs) there's only one way to relate to somebody like that, and that is that you love them and serve them and obey them. And that's what we're being called to here, that there's an expectation of discipleship. Okay, this is the scripture's expectation of what it means to be a Christian. Then you see how there are huge implications then for our life together as our church, as a church and our befriending of one another and even our parenting. So look down at these passages in Second Timothy and in, and in Titus chapter two and see how this gets fleshed out in our relationships with one another. And Paul tells Timothy there that helping one another towards obedience to Jesus is like training somebody to be a soldier or an athlete. Second Timothy two, three through five. How do you train a soldier? I mean, how do you train somebody who's going to run a marathon? You know, is it haphazard? Can you just kind of do it willy nilly? I mean, there's got to be an intentionality and an urgency and a seriousness to it, doesn't there? And what's amazing to me, if you look at this passage, that second paragraph there in Luke chapter 12, or it should be Luke 14, I believe. But anyway, that's my mistake. Um, if you look at the, the beginning of that, that second paragraph on your on your on the place where all the scriptures are, you'll see that Luke prefaces his account of of the teachings of Jesus in Luke 14 with this statement right at the beginning there. Now, now great crowds accompanied him. And then look what Jesus does. He he turns back and he sees that there's a lot of people following after him. And then what happens is, is he begins to teach them. And what he really does is he issues them a warning. He's saying to them, this is going to be harder than you think. He's unnerved by the fact there seem to be a lot of people following after him. And for whatever reason, the, the, the thing that he is calling people to doesn't seem to be, in his mind, consonant with there being large crowds of people who are seeking to follow after him. And so he issues a warning. He tells them, this is going to be harder than you think. Beware of large crowds. So Greg Ogden writes in his book on discipleship, he says, what we see in Jesus is a healthy and appropriate skepticism of the masses. The very nature of a crowd is the ability to be lost in it. It costs, it costs nothing to be a part of the masses, he says. But listen to this. He says, Jesus ministered to the crowd in order to call people out of it. 
Jesus did not think like we do. We think we need to put on events that draw crowds to reach the multitudes. We equate vision with the size of our audience, but Jesus had enough vision to think small. And what we see here is there's a very specific pattern that is emerging in Jesus's ministry and in the life of the early church articulated here in Paul's letters to Timothy and to Titus. Eugene Peterson quips, and I love it. He says, uh, Eugene Peterson wrote the message, and he's got this funny little line. He says, Jesus, it must be remembered, restricted nine-tenths of his ministry to 12 Jews because it was the only way to redeem all Americans. Isn't that great? Nine-tenths of his ministry to 12 Jews because it was the only way to redeem all Americans. And what you see, what you see, the philosophy of ministry you see Jesus operating under is he takes the crowd and he says, wow, you guys are great. Are you sure? You know, you sure you know what you're getting yourself into. But he takes 12 men and he'll teach, you know, to the masses. And then he'll take those 12 guys and sit around a campfire with them and kind of explain, you know, the teaching and explain what's going on. He, he calls people out of the large crowds to be in intimate relationship with him so he can impart not only his teaching, but his life to those people so that when he's no longer there, they can carry the torch and continue the ministry in his absence. Uh, I've been struck by this in my travels. I've been to India, oh, I don't even know, nine, ten times now, something like that. And pastors in India really get this. And so what they'll do is, they'll, they, you know, a lot of these pastors, they live on big compounds because the pastors are the wealthier members of society um, there, which is just weird. Uh, but, but that's the way it works. And so what they'll do is on off of their house, they'll build dormitories, and most of them will house um, dozens at a time sometimes, young men and young women to be their disciples. And wherever they go, these these young men and young women will go with them and they will they will live with them. They will eat with them. They will teach to them. They will they will bring them along and make them a part of their ministry. They'll they'll live their entire lives together to train them for the mission that they will then send them out uh, to engage in. I mean, and it's beautiful and it's really what you see when you come to these passages. When you see what Paul says, you see the same pattern. Look at the two. The two paragraphs down at the bottom, it's, it's really silly, but, but Paul, you know, Paul doesn't say, hey, Timothy, start a Bible study and gather a huge crowd and preach the gospel. What's he say? He says, Timothy, find a, f- a few faithful guys and get into them the teaching and the way of life that you learn from me. He says to the older women, you know, older women, put your lives on younger women and train them through your extra- instruction and through your personal example how to love their husbands. And look at the things he says. I mean, it's remarkable there at the very bottom in Titus chapter 2 that the, that the training is to be to, for them to love their husbands and their children and be self-controlled and work at home, be kind and to be submissive to their own husbands so that the word of God might not be, might, might not be reviled. And so what this means for us as a church, if you'll look on your outline here, you'll see through three crucial elements of discipleship. We believe that that the model that we've inherited from Jesus in the early church and how we train one another towards faithfulness and obedience to Jesus Christ is, is in gathering in small, intimate, what we call discipleship groups, men with men and women with women. And that there are three crucial elements of these of these groups. OK, the first being that they be relational, that they be life on life. And so Paul tells Timothy to entrust there in Timothy, chapter two faithful men with the gospel, that the older women are to train the younger women, that there's just a natural way of doing things, that it's always in the context of a relationship. And so in Deuteronomy 6, he says, parents, have the commands of the Lord on your heart and teach them to your children as you walk along the road and as you lie down, as you go throughout life, just be having this continual conversation about 
the gospel. And so these groups that we call discipleship groups are first relational. Secondly, they're intentional. They're curriculum based. There really is a curriculum that has to be passed on to the next generation. And then thirdly, they're missional or they're committed to multiplication. And you'll see this in Paul's instructions to Timothy as well. Look there, Second Timothy 2. What you've heard from me, Paul says, in the presence of many, entrust the faithful witness, faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So there's four generations of disciples in that one statement. Paul to Timothy, Timothy to the faithful men, and the faithful men to others, that there will be a multiplication effect that happens as one who is a student becomes a disciple and then takes on students that he can multiply out to generation after generation. But think about it. This idea of multiplication is even true of parenting, isn't it? The goal is to see your children become mature for the sake of their own children, to reproduce yourself in the lives of your kids. And so by application, I would say to all of us this morning, if you, just to hang your hat on this, that I think what the scripture is teaching us and what we're trying to accomplish and what we call discipleship groups are that every single one of us should have a Paul, a Barnabas and a Timothy. Have you heard this before? Most if you've been around the church, you've probably heard kind of this principle. Every single person in this room, I believe with all of my heart, they need you need three relationships in your life. You need a mentor. You need a Paul. You need somebody who's ahead of you, who has more life experience than you do, who's wiser than you, that you can be gleaning from them uh, and, and, and can be being taught and instructed by them. You need a Barnabas. You need a brother. You need a sister. You need somebody coming just alongside of you who can walk with you on the same level. And then you need a, you need a Timothy. You need a, you need a pupil. You need a student. You need somebody to be pouring your life into. And so I would just encourage you to ask, who is your Paul? Who's your Barnabas and who's your Timothy? So you see. What I'm trying to communicate, and I don't feel like I'm doing a great job, and maybe the scripture can just communicate it for me, is that what we're being called to in these passages is hard. I mean, it's hard. And Jesus says that you have to count the cost. I mean, that's the whole point of his teaching in Luke 14. That when you become a Christian, you're turning your life over to the one to whom you owe every breath, and there's nothing that he can't demand of you. He makes claim on every aspect of your life. And so the idea that you can just kind of cruise along, you know, undisturbed and undistracted from your plans for personal comfort and ease and how Jesus is going to make your life better just doesn't fit with what the scripture teaches. And so I would just encourage you, let's look at these passages and let's 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 treat them seriously. I mean, you have to, Paul says, and Jesus says you have to face your own death. You have to take up your cross and follow him. It implies you're going to the place of execution. And he says, if you're not willing to take up your cross and to die daily with me, if you can't look at the people in your life that you love and call your love for them hatred in comparison to your love for him, if you can't hold your possessions lightly and be willing to joyfully part with whatever might be asked of you and what might be needed for the mission to advance, then Jesus says, Luke 14, 26, 27, and 31, and 33, you can't be his disciple. And that doesn't mean he doesn't give you permission it means you won't have what it takes. The word is dunamis. It's power. He's saying unless you come to terms with the demands of discipleship, you won't have the courage and the perseverance that is required of all who set out to follow Jesus. And so Jonathan Edwards, in his book, Charity and Its Fruits, he writes, he has this great phrase, and he writes, he who does not receive the gospel with all of its difficulties does not receive it as it is proposed to him. 
He who does not receive Christ with his cross as well as his crown does not truly receive him at all. He says it is true that Christ invites us to come to him to find rest and to buy wine and milk. But he also invites us to come and take up the cross and that daily that we may follow him. So if we come only to accept the former, we do not in truth accept the offer of the gospel for both go together. The rest and the yoke, the cross and the crown. Now listen to this. They who receive only the easy part of Christianity and not the difficult part at best are but almost Christians. Martin Luther believed one of the marks of the true church to be that you would suffer. And if you look at the analogy that Jesus is is using here about the grain of wheat that's falling to the ground and dying and then producing fruit, if you want your life to be fruitful, you have to die. It's the only way it works. And so we have to end for just a couple of minutes as we wrap up this morning. Is where do we just asking the question, where do we get the energy for that? Where do we get the energy to follow him, taking up our cross and going to the place of our own execution? And, and I want you to look with me at the passage from John 12 up at the top of your sheet there. And Jesus begins. He begins by saying, and it's a fascinating phrase, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. The time had come. For him to be recognized and praised and applauded. But he's going to be glorified, right? But what is his glory? Is it that he's finally going to reveal himself and all of his power and might and pay back all of the doubters and the scoffers? No, he's going to the cross. And so Jesus' glory was the cross. And I say that his glory was the cross because there was something more that he wanted. He wanted something more than he wanted fame and accolade. And he knew there was only way to get it. He had to die and to suffer and to be crucified on the cross. You see, Jesus knew that unless he went to the cross and died, he would remain alone. Do you see that in, in John 12, 24? That he could have walked away. I mean, this is what the scripture teaches. He could have called out to his father to rescue him and avoided the agony of the crucifixion, but he didn't. He didn't because there was a greater agony than the agony of the crucifixion, and that was the agony and the pain at the thought that he might have to live without you and I. Jesus was willing to die and to be put in the earth because he knew that it would produce a harvest that would be to his everlasting joy. And that is the love with which he has loved us. There was only one way. There was only one way for him to save us. He had to suffer and to die for our sins. And I don't want to water things down for you. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a famous saying where he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He says the cross is laid on every Christian. It's not a terrible into an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. It meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And so how do we get the courage and the desire to take up our cross and to follow him? You know, there's only one way. You have to first see him carrying his cross, bloody and beaten and exhausted, and to know that he did it joyfully because his heart's greatest treasure was not his personal comfort or ease. His heart's greatest treasure was you. The thought of living without you for all eternity was a greater hell for him than the hell he endured as he hung on the cross. And when you really begin to see him loving you like that, then you will begin to love him too. You see, he calls us to leave our lives behind and follow him. And so how do we find the strength and the determination and the courage to do that? Well, there's only one way. You have to consider what he left to go in search of you. Jesus left his father's side in heaven. He left streets of gold and the glories of heaven to walk the dusty roads of earth. You know, he left the sound of angels praised to be jeered and mocked and cursed by mouths that he created. 
He left riches and became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. You see how much it cost him to come in search of you. He left everything because none of it was any good to him without you. And can I just want to ask, can you feel your heart begin to melt at that thought? Whatever cross is yours to bear, remember you are following one who has bore a cross for your sins because it was the cost of loving you. And he did it gladly because his love for you is so great. And that's where the power of discipleship and the power for discipleship comes from. Will you give your life to him? Will you follow him? Will you come after him? He loved you like that. Can you love him in return? Let's pray together this morning. Jesus, you are a great savior. Uh, that in our sin and despair, you have come into the world to rescue us. To live the life we should have lived and to work for us a perfect righteousness that we had no hope of ever meriting on our own. But you've also died the death that we should have died. That you, like the seed, went down into the ground. And because you died and went into the earth and have risen again, we have the promise of resurrection as well if we put our faith in you. You are also a, a terrible master and Lord. And we and you're to be feared. And forgive us for how callously we go about our lives and, and the shallow understanding that we live with of, of what it in fact is that you're calling us to be and to do and to help us this morning to wrestle with the implications and to count the cost of discipleship and show us a, a vision of the love that you have for us that it might compel us, as Paul says, uh, to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for the one who's died and been raised again for us. Take us to yourselves as your disciples. Give us hearts that beat in tune with your heart. Give us feet that we might put, put our feet down in the footprints that you've left for us and may it all be for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.